Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and the Jonah Goldberg. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and all these podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And on today's podcast, we've got a lot to cover. We have the Amy Coney Barrett hearings in all of their boring, wonderful glory. We have the election trying to take the temperature down. Maybe it won't be as bad as everyone says. What's going on with the Senate predictions? Where is the majority going to lie? And finally, what's going on with some of those investigations that have been lingering out there, like unmasking? Let's dive right in. Jonah, you're going to take us live to the most boring Supreme Court confirmation hearing to ever happen three weeks out from an election. Or almost any time out from an election. Uh, um, I think I think the hearings are going very well for. Um, what's her name? Amy Coney Barrett. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of sleep deprived. And. Um, I think they're going very well. I think that uh, this has been fairly embarrassing to the Republic for all sorts of reasons, which I could diatribe about. But uh, since it's it's going on, uh, the last day of her testimony is today. I figured we should open up with just how do you guys think she's doing? And um, uh, is there anything that could derail it at this point? I think that it is, in fact, uh, going so well for her that I think normally we would say that a draw would be um, a win for her. But I actually think she's putting points on the board, which is shocking to me coming into this. Uh, I think that that is because she is sort of showing this combination of high intellect, high empathy. uh, And there's, I mean, she's just squeaky clean on um, a bunch of the policy, tough third rail issues. What is interesting to me is that normally, and I'll see what David thinks about this, normally I would say that is not good for a judge to be this good at a confirmation hearing. It's sort of like how someone who's a great presidential candidate, I often think is not necessarily a great president. They're just two very different skill sets, but somehow we require the one in order to do the other. Um, But I actually think she's good in a confirmation way that actually does make me think she's going to be a good justice, which I just, there's, (laughs) I've come away uh, uh, shocked and pleased. I'm curious about David though. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, she's doing really, really well. I mean, she's doing so well that I would think, uh, if I were the Democrats, I would just say, let's go ahead and end the hearings right now. I mean, we can't stop this. We're not scoring any points on her. Let's get Trump back fully in the news cycle and move on. Um, she's just really good at this. I mean, and, and, you know, she reminds me of some of the better law professors that I had. Uh, this person who can combine just a really personable communication style with a first-rate intellect. And she's just good. I mean, there was a reason why I was arguing all the way back in 2018, nominate Amy Coney Barrett, nominate Amy Coney Barrett. This person is really, really good. And and she'll be excellent on the court. Uh, I, I don't think, as I have written extensively, I don't think she's going to be revolutionary on the court. I, I think that 
she'll be evolutionary in the sense that she'll solidify some pre-existing trends, but I don't think she'll be revolutionary, but she'll be somebody that, you know, 30, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, we'll look back and as having not just a track record of a formidable track record of jurisprudence, but also being kind of an ambassador for the court in, in an interesting way, somebody who's going to be a relatable human being on the Supreme Court of the United States. So I think it's, from her standpoint, it's going really well. And I guess from the Democrat standpoint, the best thing that they can say about it is they're not doing any harm to themselves right now in the presidential election. They haven't created that viral gotcha moment. They've just been, I would say, mildly annoying. Steve? Just to back up David's point with some numbers, there's a new morning consult poll out this morning that shows that 48% of registered voters say the Senate should vote to confirm uh, Amy Coney Barrett as a Supreme Court justice today. That's an increase from of a couple points from a poll a week ago, and there were there was other polling that showed more skepticism. So, so this is clearly moving in the right direction in terms of the the public uh, mind, and I think that's a reflection to some extent of of how she's uh, handled herself, both in the the pre hearing phase and the arguments that Republicans put forth in the in the pre-hearing phase and then also um obviously most of the the hearing has taken place after that poll but uh suggests that this is that this is a good moment for her and a good moment for republicans um i'm gonna i'm going to uh shelve my pre-planned rant about various things um and actually ask a couple ask a follow-up question on this um it's not like i don't have opportunities sarah looked shocked when i said that as if i would ever forego a rant but uh, I do have other outlets to rant upon. Um, but I'd say the one bad note, one thing I really did not like from yesterday's hearing, we're recording this on Wednesday, obviously, is I understand the strategy. And I even understand the, the need, according to the canon of ethics or, you know, the grand meister of the Citadel or whatever it is she's invoking, that she is not <laughs> supposed to offer a legal opinion about something that could become before the court. I get that. I really did not like her answer, though, about whether, I think it was from Booker, the question of, can you agree that the, you know, he, she agreed that racism is bad, and she agreed to denounce white supremacy. And then he asked her, do you agree that the president of the United States should be mindful of a peaceful transfer of power, should be in favor of a peaceful transfer of power or, some, or words to that effect? And she did her whole, I'd have to like, I'd have to hear briefs. I'd have to blah, blah, blah. And I think that's BS. I mean, I honestly do. And I, I and so my question, particularly to, to David and Sarah is, is, was that necessary in your mind? Or, I mean, I, it seems to me that uh, if you're not having a peaceful transfer of power, it's because things aren't going to the court. So you don't have to worry about like uh, prejudicing yourself if it's between two different competing groups of mobs with pitchforks who aren't taking <laughs> things to the court in the first place. And I think, and I, and, and as I, as I suspected it would, that has become central already this morning on MSNBC as the scary thing that she did. So what do you guys think? I mean, was it real, would it really have opened a door that you would have to answer other questions about, you know, some ar arcane, you know, forgotten commerce clause stuff. If she had just said in America, we're a democracy and we, we believe in the, the peaceful transfer of power. So I think 
the issue was commenting on something that a potential litigant had said. It was not the substance of it. Trump has commented on white supremacy. I mean, he's commented on, you know, racism. I mean, peaceful transfer of power, it seems to me, is something that is sort of But what he actually, I agree. But what he actually asked was, do you believe that every president should make a commitment unequivocally and resolutely to the peaceful transfer of power? And what she said was, well, Senator, that seems to be pulling me into this question of whether the president said that he would not peacefully to the extent that this is a political controversy right now. As a judge, I don't want to express a view on it. It goes on from there, obviously. Um, She goes on to talk about how, like, the peaceful transfer of power is really important. What she was refusing to get into was the comments of a potential litigant in front of her, because if there is an election controversy that goes up to the Supreme Court and those comments were part of the opposing brief and she had said that those comments were reprehensible or something... Uh, you know, some people would say that was not great. No, that's I mean, all fair. I, I'll go back and look at the text, but I, I'm sorry, David, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I, I mean, I agree with Sarah. I think there is a way she could have said uh, that she could have perhaps upfront and very clearly said the peaceful transfer of power is a cornerstone to our democracy. And I think she could have answered that better, frankly, but I do... And then said, but I'm not going to comment. You know, your question was specifically about whether a president should say that. And I'm not going to comment on that or something. Right. Right. And and I think it it is just a reality that there is a very good chance that you're going to have Donald Trump uh, as a litigant in extremely urgent, extremely contentious litigation in front of the court in a matter of weeks. And there is there is a case for an abundance of caution in what you're going to say about one of these litigants beforehand. But did she, I think, you know, if I, if I had to fault any one of our answers, that's the one you would fault simply because there was a way to finesse that better, I think, there, that there is a way where you could have led with um, generalized statements about the vital importance of the peaceful transfer of power and then segue into uh, at regard, but I cannot get into condemning or passing judgment on any given statement of a potential litigant. Yeah. And I think court. she could have just said, look, the whole point of the constitution is that <laughs> you yeah. know? That's, that's what the Constitution's about is the peaceful transfer of power. You know, everything else in some ways is secondary to that. And yeah, I think she just she gave a talking point where she didn't need to because all of the caveats she gave after that. um, That's not what ended up in the cycle. And so far, she's been really, really good about denying people talking points. It's also worth Um, noting that that exchange happened at roughly 530 p.m. when a hearing started at 9 a.m. Oh, but (laughs) as we know from Saddam's torture chambers, you always get the best results after like the 11th hour. I mean, that, that, that's, we knew that. It, it's also worth noting that this is a discussion with a Supreme Court nominee at all. I mean, think about, think about the fact that she has to be careful to, to embrace the peaceful transfer of power right. because it might get her crosswise with the president of the United States, right. who Which has is just come insane. out against or, or not against, but has raised questions about how important it is it is it is I mean, a moment it is it a moment is almost as and it's on par maybe slightly less ludicrous than asking her to take a position on whether or not 
we should firebomb North Dakota. You know, I mean, like, what's your position? Is that would that be constitutional? Right. Because, I mean, that's as weird as asking, should the president be in favor of the peaceful transfer of power? So I have uh, a question for you, Jonah, which is um, I thought that the media coverage of this yesterday was fascinating because all of a sudden, uh, thanks to me and David, I assume, the media has finally come around to understanding that the Affordable Care Act is not going to be tossed in the trash, uh, no matter who's on the court at this point. And so this talking point that the Democrats really stayed on all day Monday and for a good chunk of yesterday was uh, that by having her on the Supreme Court, it was going to strip health care from all, you know, millions and millions of people, pre-existing conditions were going to come back, the parade of horribles, and that by and large, most of the headlines I saw rejected that yesterday and said, you know, started actually getting into the legal analysis that that was simply not how this case really could even turn out. Um, on the flip side, the language of court packing, I feel like shifted perhaps the other direction in which uh, court packing can now mean stacking the court with judges rather than adding justices to the court. And I was wondering what you thought of that, Jonah. See, now I, I told you I was going to forego my ranting and here you go baiting me. I mean, people, people can't see, but she's literally holding up a dripping piece of flank steak in front of me. Uh, uh, all right. So first of all, the strategy, the Obamacare strategy thing, which allowed them to do everything shy of having small children with cleft palates inside dog cages while they played Sarah McLaughlin in the background <laughs> got really, really tedious after a while. I mean, you know, like, um, it's, you would think that their entire constituencies are full of, are, are, are like from the burn wards at the orphanage hospital or something. Anyway, um, on this language thing, that, and also this stuff about sexual preference, it's, is driving me to the point of vexation. Explain because, the sexual preference thing quickly. Okay, so uh, at some point, uh, Amy Coney Barrett had said something about, you know, uh, discrimination against people according to their sexual preference, which literally, up until 48 hours ago, was a fairly normal thing for people to say. Joe Biden has said in the last year, every leading, people are, you know, like, like Batman to the poll, uh, people are heeing to their Nexus Lexus machines to look up all the Democrats who have used the phrase sexual preference within the last 365 days, and they are legion. And um, if this is true, I saw this was trending on Twitter with screen caps of it, screen caps of it, so I assume it's true. Webster's literally yesterday decided to change the meaning of sexual preference to say that it was a pejorative or offensive phrase to use simply because of these hearings, which is super, super Orwellian and creepy. And the same thing goes with this court packing stuff. Um, you know, F the, the New Deal and FDR are like one of the few things in history that I actually know quite a bit about and that whole period. And every liberal historian in America for the last 70, 80 years, the only, there were only like three things you're allowed to criticize FDR about. And the court packing thing is one of them. At the time in the 1930s, it was considered a major, his, it was a major attempt to make us more like Germany and Italy. It was considered a, a, a fascistic authoritarian power grab. And that's why it failed because Democrats recognized it as such. 
and he was abandoned by countless progressive leaders because of it, and has been remembered as a huge blunder by FDR ever since. But at least FDR had the frickin' decency to lie about what he was doing. FDR said, oh, I don't want to expand the court for political power. I want to help the court because too many of them are too old to handle the workload, which was proven to be a lie. And so he said he wanted to add people below the retirement age, add an additional justice for everybody over the age of 70. It was all this canard that he was doing it for uh, efficiency reasons to youthen up and, and, and make a more efficient the court. The people who in the last 72, 96 hours, because Biden screwed up on his messaging on this stuff, who have embraced this idea that core packing, qua court packing, is just a good thing, is astonishing to me. And not only that, but that's what the Orwellian thing with the messaging of the, the sexual preference stuff is, is not only are they in favor of actual court packing, which has been denounced by, you know, everybody for, for two gener three generations, they are now saying the real court packing is when you fill existing vacancies with people we don't like. And they've sufficiently muddied the waters because AP and, and, and MSNBC and the cable news networks are carrying water for them like Gunga Din in the desert. And I, I just, it, we've had more Orwellian terrible moments with language perversion and memory holing and unpersoning in our lives. But to see this kind of thing in the last 72 hours crescendo like this has been driving me crazy. And it's why I'm cutting myself. I can I can see the 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 flecks of spittle on Jonah's camera yeah, now I, that he's I, I, now that he's finished finished. I, I thank you all for wearing masks. It is really. It, I think it's a very good point. It, it, it's really been something to watch this happen in real time and to follow the language. I mean, you know. If, if I went to the grocery store and forgot a carton of milk, the Democrats would accuse me of court packing. That's court packing. Anything that you do that they don't like is now court packing. And, you know, the AP had this story that's caused some controversy where they, in effect, talked about the Democrats' efforts to um, expand the court to depoliticize it. Yeah. Um, as if, as if the court packing wasn't the politicization of right. the court. I mean, it was really, it really is, is remarkable. And you don't want to make too much of, you know, of, of one story, but I think it's been more than one story in the acceptance of this. You know, obviously Democrats were looking for a way, I think, to capitalize on the, on this moment, understanding that they were not going to be able to block Amy Coney Barrett. They were looking for ways to capitalize on this moment three weeks before an election. One of the ways in which they thought this would, would be appropriate was during the hearings to focus on Obamacare. They focused on Obamacare. They had pictures of people who uh, would be denied health care without Obamacare and accused Republicans of wanting her on the court in order to uh, torpedo Obamacare. But the other thing they did was to try to sort of, you know, jujitsu the court packing charge so that it wasn't Joe Biden and his refusal to answer on court packing for more than a week uh, that was a defiance of norms. It was Trump and the Republicans who were abusing their position by court packing all over the place. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to work because there's a general sense people know what court packing is. And you saw, saw the numbers about Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, it's going to work. 
<laughs> it's going to work. What, I mean, what, you think it's going to work in in ele- for the election, in electoral? I mean, it, it, what it's going to what I'm what I mean by work is I mean uh, I I don't mean I don't think it's a convincing argument. I think it's ridiculous to say that filling actual vacancies that exist under the law with speed and efficiency is court packing. <laughs> That's not court packing by any normal definition whatsoever. But the way partisanship works now is can I supply a talking point to get us through a news cycle? And that's in that sense, that's what you, that's that's what you have. It's here is our talking point to get through this news cycle. Well, maybe Joe Biden works out a better answer for next time. But I, I think you know one of the most frustrating aspects of the current political environment is that that works. This, I'm going to supply a talking point to get through the news cycle, consistently works no matter how ridiculous the talking point is. And so, you know, I think as you saw it sort of come all over Twitter over the last, you know, uh, and it's all over social media, all over cable news over the last, you know, 72 hours, uh, last three, four days, it was clear that they'd picked up this mantle. And, you know, for people who don't pay close attention, here's what they hear. Oh, what? Republicans have court packed too? Okay. And I mean, it, it gets people through the moment. Uh, so, and it, so in that sense, I think it works it, independent of the merits of the argument. I mean, the argument is ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. Uh, if you're going to blame anybody for this huge flood of Republican judges, I mean, blame Harry Reid. He created the think, conditions. You know, and uh, Kate Bedingfield, the deputy campaign manager for the Biden campaign, was on Jake Tapper on, I believe it was Sunday, and he asked her to respond or explain uh, the quote from Joe Biden that this was unconstitutional. (laughs) Right. Right. And she said, well, the people should have a say. Our Constitution is about electing senators, and therefore what's happening now is unconstitutional. And Jake's like, that's not unconstitutional. And she said, you know, pointed to a poll of people who thought the uh, seat should stay open until after the election. Jake said polling isn't in the Constitution. And so I, you know, I think that that's tied in with the same argument that if you just say it's unconstitutional, you kind of flim flam around a little bit when called on it, it gets you through the week. Uh, I think David's spot on on that. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, the Acton Line. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, visit actin.org slash dispatch or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's actin.org slash dispatch to subscribe. Okay, next topic. Speaking of the election, you know, a couple months ago, I really was uh, diving into the numbers on mail-in ballots and what a large-scale shift in 
big time turnout early and on mail-in ballots would do to sort of the certainty of the election outcome. And I was concerned about that because mail-in ballots get rejected or fail to get delivered at a much, much higher rate. Uh, lots of other people are were concerned about that. They were concerned about Trump's comment on the peaceful transfer of power. It has just raised the temperature so much around this that when I now talk to people, it's universal that people are really concerned about what November 4th looks like in this country. Whereas I have actually gotten far less concerned about what November 4th looks like in this country over the last six or eight weeks. Uh, Curious if your temperature has gone up or down on the election, David. I'm, I'm with you, Sarah, as should not be surprising since I'm your ally. Um, Look, let me, let me put it this way. If, if the I'm looking right now at the October 14 numbers um, on the 538 weighted average of polling, it's a Biden 10 plus 10.6. Now, yes, can That's it good, narrow? Right? <laughs> it's good for Biden for sure. I mean, can it narrow? <laughs> That's what I meant. Well, yeah, it it can narrow because it's been more narrow before. I mean, on October 3rd, it was Biden 7.4. Uh, but we're getting close to November third, and I'm looking at, and I'm looking right now. There's this fantastic website that tells you exactly how many people have voted early or returned mail ballots, mail-in ballots. Thirteen million, three hundred forty-one thousand, three hundred sixty-seven people have already voted. That's a nine point six percent of the total 2016 turnout. So this election is fully in in process. Biden right now is sitting at plus ten point six. Now, it's possible there is a a polling fail of all polling fails, at which point, you know, you would call for an immediate shutdown of the polling industry until we can figure out what is going on. But um, as of right now, this thing is not going to be a nail biter. (laughs) This is, you know, it could very well be where at the moment it is looking more likely uh, that we're going to have sort of a throwback type election, one that we thought was not really possible anymore in our highly polarized time. And that's the early call uh, and with a wave and a landslide, something more like 1988 or 92 or 96 than anything like 2000. The polls would now have to be wrong well outside the margin of error, Steve. Yeah, I think that's right. First, can I ask a point of clarification for David? What is the fantastic website? Oh, yeah, it's great. Electproject.github.io. And I've got it bookmarked, and I check it every day. And is this it's, on the dark web? What is this <laughs> IP address? I, know, I, think if you dot, serve... I think it's IO is Indian Ocean. So this, you know, this, this could be Russian disinformation, Sounds but official. I don't think so. No, I think I think I think it's a. If I'm not mistaken, it's a University of Florida professor. Uh, if I'm remembering, yes, this Michael correctly. McDonald, professor, University of Florida. Yes. Yeah, you can search. Up, I think you can search elect project and keep uh, keep track of of how this is going. So I I uh, I guess I'm in the same position that that you two are, just looking forward to election day, twenty days from today. Um, Primarily for a, for a couple of reasons. One, what we're seeing with the polls themselves. Um, it's not just in the national polling that Biden seems to be pulling away. That that the, let's just put it this way: that the tightening that we ex- have long expected to see is not happening yet. Now, it could right. happen. Probably will happen a little bit. 
But he is, in fact, increasing his lead in national polling and in most of the swing state polling that we've seen over the past week. So even with tightening, um, it, it, as you say, it, it would have to be a sort of monumental change of trajectory and failure of polling broadly uh, for Biden not to prevail. And, and I, you know, my view has been that, that he'll win pretty big. I think it's much more likely that Joe Biden will win in a landslide than that Donald Trump will be elected. The second reason that I'm a little bit, um, and I'm, I'm talking specifically here about avoiding the kinds of nightmare scenario post-election fighting that we've worried about uh, on this podcast and in some of our writings. So that's one reason. If, a, if the margin of error is bigger, it makes complaints about a potential stealing of the election, uh, I think, less persuasive or matter less. The second reason actually is COVID. Um, I think it's the case that the the president contracting the virus, being taken out for a week or partially taken out for a week, um, gives him in part an excuse that he can use if he loses in a significant way. Now, I have no doubt that he's also going to say the Democrats stole it and the whole thing was rigged and all of the things that he's been saying all along. But I think it will give the president and, and importantly, some of the president's other supporters a softer way to explain a bad loss than just fueling conspiracies about the, the election having been rigged. And that in and of itself, I mean, I have no doubt that, you know, really strong Trump supporters, if he loses in a big way, will be very upset and we'll hear a lot about it and the president will egg them on. And all of that, I expect, is, is going to happen. But I think it takes maybe the, the marginal Trump supporters, some of the Republican elected officials who might have been inclined to either not distance themselves from that kind of talk or maybe even embrace it in a very close race. It makes them less likely and gives them something else to to point to. Jonah. Um, so I like going back to the question is framed from Sarah at the beginning. Uh, I think basically the concern about election night is all basically a stand in for confidence in the polls. Right. I mean, there's this tight correlation. If you really think these polls are right, then you don't have to worry about election night because, as Sarah says, if it's a blowout, you know, the re- er, it, Trump will Trump will lose decisively on day of returns, never mind the mail in ballots. And even if there's spoilage and all that kind of stuff and we won't have the kind of you know tanks in the streets that, you know, of course, uh, Amy Coney Barrett cannot offer an opinion on. And um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> you like that? I, like that. Uh, I will say, though, that I think. There is. I think it's good. I go back and forth about whether or not it's going to be a blowout or not. And, um, you know, one portentous sign was was Nate Silver seemed to be having some sort of moment the other day where he was sort of laying the groundwork for why the model might be wrong in his model that everyone is relying on, which has a very <laughs> deja vu kind of feel to it. Um, but also, I. I'm sure all you guys are familiar with the concept of Chekhov's gun. Um, yes. In theater, for listeners who don't know, che- uh, Chekhov made this argument that 
extraneous elements in drama should be trimmed and that everything that is in the story should be used in the story later in the story or get rid of it. So if you see a gun on a table in Act 1, it has to show up in Act 3 or there shouldn't have been a gun there in the first place. And of course, the Sopranos broke all of this because we still don't know what happened to the Russian and the Pine Baron. That said, um, uh, I've never seen. I really think that Amy Coney Barrett is going to get appointed to the Supreme, is going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court, and because Donald Trump has repeatedly said that he's relying on her to break the tie in his favor, or insinuated, I should say, she's going to get on the court and then she's going to rule against him, and because that is the way you tie a bow on this entire (laughs) storyline. And um, if it doesn't play out like that, uh, then, you know, what are we all doing here? So that's my only Then maybe God just isn't the reality TV show producer you thought he was. Why do you hurt me? (laughs) Well, Jonah, you just, uh, you're just edging into my, I have a unified theory of Trump judges Uh that is, um, you're going to see a lot of repudiation (laughs) of Trump era, uh, challenged Trump era policies from Trump judges who do not want to be saddled with him as their def- the defining part of their legacy. I think that's right. I think in, in some ways, but my point is it's sort of a Ghostbusters thing. Choose mm-hmm. the form of your destroyer. He chose Amy Coney Barrett and she's going to destroy him. <laughs> Amy anyway. Coney Barrett as a stay push, puff marshmallow man is everything I needed for this Wednesday morning. <laughs> Uh, and that Steve has no idea what I'm referencing. That's important yeah. too. That's Ghostbusters reference. Yeah, he said that. Though. Good, Steve. Wow. Good, huh? good Steve. Good. Let me give you a cookie, Steve. So here's my take. Uh, I have two different points on lowering the temperature on the election. One, the you know, in a snake map of the electoral uh, states that are really in question, as in you put the states that are redder and more likely to go to Trump on one side and in order, uh, and then all the way over to the left. The three states that are most likely to go for Trump are Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. Uh, they are also the states that count their early mail-in ballots before the election day. Florida already started. They started on Monday. And so on election night, we don't need to wait for that bulk of absentee ballots. They're already going to have them counted. Now, the ones that obviously arrived that day, things like that, there's going to be some outstanding ones, but we're going to have some really good results on election night from those three states. If Trump loses uh, one of those states, interesting. If he loses two of those states, I am willing to say that I think it will be over early. Uh, And if he loses three of those states, I think it's 100% over as soon as we know that. Now, the states that are harder for Trump to win, just from a general historical perspective, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, they do not count in advance, at least as of now. There's some pending litigation on this. But they're the states we need to know the least about on election night. Uh, And so, yes, if it comes down to those, it means we were going to have a close night anyway and that the polls were incredibly far off. So let's get to the polls. I... To Jonah's point, you're totally right that the people who are most nervous about election night are the ones that don't understand uh, how polls really are even functioning these days. Uh, so clearing up some questions that I've gotten in my inbox uh, the last like couple weeks, yes, pollsters call cell phones and landlines, the good ones, the ones that we use in our averages and stuff like that. 
so it doesn't, it's okay that not too many people have landlines anymore or use them. Two, there's this big like, who's answering this? Because the people who email me are like, I never answer numbers that I don't recognize. And so I think that's relevant. And look, pollsters only get, you know, below a 10% response rate when they run these polls. So when you see that a poll uh, talked to a thousand voters in Florida, they had to call 10,000 people or more. And that may seem bad, but it's only bad if the 10% who do answer the pollster don't represent or have some difference in the rest of the 10,000 voters. And so far, that has not really been the case. There's no particular partisan divide in who picks up the phone for a pollster and answers those numbers they don't recognize. Pollsters, by the way, also leave messages. And so some people just call back when they found out they got a poll. So I think that the big way that the polls could be wrong, and I still doubt that they would be 10 points wrong, for instance, is if this year, as opposed to any previous year, uh, there is a difference in who answers those polls and the difference is not bound up in their partisan affiliation. As in, it's not just that uh, Republicans would answer the polls less or more because we obviously know people's partisan affiliations in a lot of states and that's not showing up. It would have to be that within the partisan affiliation that people who are more likely to vote for Trump and identify as Republican are less likely to answer the poll than those who are not going to vote for Trump and identify as Republican. It's possible. Uh, It doesn't seem all that likely to me, but more importantly, it doesn't seem like it would make a more than four point swing in the polls. So that's my taking the temperature down on November 4th. It's going to be okay. God bless America. <laughs> well, I'm I'm I am rooting for as little turmoil and strife as possible. Um, but Steve, and- I will say this: all that said, that does not help these Senate races. For all those states that don't count mail-in ballots ahead of time, uh, and that difference in spoilage on mail-in ballots, so I'm turning it over to you. <laughs> yeah, and and that's sort of the 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 key point. I think. One thing we can say about what we've seen in the public polling is that it's being mirrored in the private polling. Talk to Republican pollsters who are working in these swing states, either for groups that are affiliated with the president and his campaigns or his PACs, or whether you're talking about um, Senate races, House races, people who are doing polling in the states are seeing the same thing. Uh, you know, drop offs, this, the the drop off for the president and for Republicans on the generic ballot, which means if a pollster says, do you prefer Republicans or Democrats, um, happened precipitously, uh, immediately after the first debate and significant numbers that they're not seeing tick back up, at least at this point, um, you know, six, seven, eight, nine point drops in the generic ballot, those kind of drops in support for the president. Consistent with that point, if you look at the analyses and the race ratings from the Cook Political Report, which has a very good track record on these things, and I think is is worth uh, paying attention to, Jessica Taylor from the Cook Political Report tweeted, quote, we are also increasing our current Senate projection from a gain of two to seven seats for Democrats, which we think is a range for Democrats. Um, that's not great news for Republicans. So my question is, how many seats 
do you think Democrats are likely to pick up on election night? And are there places that we should be paying closer attention to as we get near the election where safe Republicans or Republicans thought to be safe uh, will be threatened or potentially lose on election night? Jonah, I'll start with you. Um, I think at this point, Democrats are going to take the Senate. Um, and I don't know that they're going to get seven seats, but I would, what are they? So, you know, if Biden wins, they only need what, three, is it three or four because of the vice president? I can never remember. Um, but I had a very plugged in guy, uh, text me the other night asking, my God, is Dan Sullivan really going to lose? Um, for people who don't know, he's the, um, he's a Senator from Alaska who's, uh, married to a lovely lady that my wife went to high school with. And, um, uh, and I, I will be shocked if he loses, but if he loses my God, that means it's going to be seven, right? Because that should not be a seat in jeopardy. And the same thing with the sort of the Georgia seats and whatnot. So, but I'm going to, I'm going to say four, but Dan Sullivan would be the, my big shock of the night. Sarah? I use Iowa as a bellwether because they went in really confident into that Iowa race that Joni Ernst was just fine, barring some huge electoral wave that they couldn't overcome at the top of the ticket. And they're, you know, their heads are bouncing (laughs) below water a little right now, bobbing in the ocean of that wave. So for me, uh, it doesn't mean that if Joni Ernst loses, it's a seven uh, seat gain for Democrats. But to me, that means that there was such a wave that it is going to wash out senators who were actually pretty safe as of even six months ago. Um, I, for whatever reason, <laughs> uh, I do predict, though, a, a big wave. And I think that it will swamp out a lot. I don't know whether it will reach Alaska, but I also just look at the 2022 map and think it's fascinating that Republicans also won't be able to really pick up seats. That map is horrible for Republicans in 2022. The pickup opportunities will be if they lose the Arizona and Georgia specials, they can pick those back up in theory. But the states that are actually uh, out there and available you know, our Wisconsin, they're going to have to defend. North Carolina is going to be an open seat, the Burr seat that they're going to have to defend. Uh, And then Democratic pickup seats. Okay, Nevada, Colorado, New Hampshire. That's an uphill battle in, you know, any day of the week. So I think there's going to be a a huge swap level tide rising moment uh, as of right now in the Senate. I think it'll take a while for us to know all of the details of it, but then I think that Republicans will not be able to even get some of those back in 2022. And add to those 2022 seats, Pat Toomey's seat in Pennsylvania. You're right, uh, yeah. Which he just announced uh, last yeah, week. Yeah, so they'll be defending Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina while trying to win in New Hampshire, Colorado, uh, and Nevada. I, I don't think so. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I, I'm, I keep thinking, okay, that what would be the sign of the apocalypse 
And the one state that keep for Republicans, the one state that keeps coming back in my mind is Texas, both for um, the presidency and for Senate. I mean, um, Cook has Texas as lean Republican, just as it has Sullivan in Alaska. Um, to be but, clear, if John Cornyn loses in Texas, it's not a seven seat gain. Right. <laughs> right. Like the just uh, the entire I, Senate, like they have a supermajority. They don't need to get rid of the filibuster. They are the <laughs> filibuster. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, otherwise I would have said, well, if Lindsey Graham loses, that would be a sign of the apocalypse. But I, I, I don't that's a complete toss up now. I mean, under present conditions, I, I guess. If you're looking at what would surprise you, what what's the leading edge indicator that we've missed it in the sense that we've been overly optimistic about Republican chances and we're not we haven't been super optimistic, that's Cornyn. And and I guess one of the questions that I have, and this is, you know, a really important question going forward for the Republican Party, was how much was that nail biter between Beto and Ted Cruz a um an outlier versus a harbinger of future events. And I think that we're going to learn a lot about that. And, and I still see Trump winning Texas. I still see Cornyn winning Texas. But for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Uh, and, and if the Democrats were to flip Texas, that's the point where the Republican Party just sort of says... Whatever we did for the last four years to put us right here, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> it has to change. Well, so, I mean, back to Steve then. In 96, at this point, you had senators saying, you know, we need a check on Clinton. And um, people yeah. have been prophesying this switch for Republicans tactics for a long time. We saw a hint of it in a debate from Tillis um, where he said something along the lines, you know, like, like if heaven forbid Trump loses or Biden wins, we need a Republican Senate to be a check. But that's not abandoning Trump quite yet. Um, do you see that coming or is that just uh, that that ship has sailed? You know, it's it's a good question. <clears throat> it's it's so difficult having talked to, to folks who are working on a, a number of these competitive Senate races across the country. The challenge they face is the challenge that Republicans have faced in, in some ways for the past four years. They don't the, the the people who are hardcore Trump supporters are so um, supportive of Trump that they don't brook any um, any space, any distance between a Senate candidate and a, and a, uh, the president. And if you look deep into the numbers, uh, Lindsey Graham's numbers. The reason that he's in trouble to some extent is not just that he's alienated sort of centrist and independent voters in South Carolina, but because the president's hardest of hardcore supporters do not believe that he's as supportive of Trump as he certainly seems to have been in, in public. There's a very interesting um, article by Perry Bacon uh, about this on 538 not long ago, and and Graham's approval numbers are consistently seven, eight, 10 points below what, what Trump's are. And, and that explains some of the soft, softer support that he's seeing that could imperil him. Um, we have seen, I mean, we saw Martha McSally stumble through some answers in, in her debate, not wanting to re-embrace Trump, but not wanting to alienate Trump either. And I think we're likely to see a lot more of that. I would not be surprised in 
in uh, a couple of these states to see Senate candidates take sort of tactical shots at the president if the president, when the president does something um, that they're asked about, just to create some distance. Uh, I can say without fear of contradiction that in the fundraising world, um, that argument is being used directly and pretty aggressively. Sarah and I talked to Jonathan Martin about this on on Friday, and it is the case that people raising money for Senate candidates are saying Donald Trump is going to lose. He could lose very badly if he loses. Republicans need to control the Senate because otherwise the filibuster is gone. And the argument that you'll get is, you know, if, if it's close, you probably have some institutionalists or centrist Democrats who would not vote to, to do away with the filibuster if, if Chuck Schumer, Schumer moves in that direction, which I would expect he would. Um, folks like Joe Manchin and John Tester um, and others. But if if the margin balloons beyond, you know, a one or two vote margin, you know, it's not a filibuster proof majority, but it would be enough to allow Chuck Schumer to get rid of a filibuster. And that's an argument that Republican fundraisers, at least, are making directly behind the scenes. And now a quick word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. That's right. We're headed to the bathroom. And when you go to the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, I hope. You don't want random passersby looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Did you know that your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon, knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on everything iPhones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, Secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash freedom today. Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash freedom, and you get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash freedom. Happy bathroom breaks, listeners. All right, David, we're on to our last topic. Hit us. I'm so excited. Uh, okay. Well, it's a... Uh... It's been an interesting few days for those who are looking for sort of the last uh, minute bombshell exposing Spygate, Obamagate, Russiagate, all the gates. So just to kind of sum it up, uh, we learned that uh, U.S. Attorney John Durham, who is investigating the circumstances surrounding the commencement of the Russia investigation in 2016, that there's not expected to be any uh, prosecute or any indictments prior to the election or a report. Uh, we also learned that the unmasking probe that uh, Attorney General Barr commissioned has concluded without any charges. Uh, there won't be any sort of public report. And then in a really kind of amusing development, we found out that this much vaunted declassification order that Trump has tweeted about saying that 
We're going to get sort of all of the Hillary email matters and all of the documents related to the Russian investigation into the public square, that there is no such declassification report. FOIA requests uh, yielded a declaration from the DOJ that says this. The White House Counsel's Office informed the department that there is no order requiring wholesale declassification or disclosure of documents. The department was further informed that the president's statements on Twitter were not self-executing declassification orders and do not require the declassification of any particular documents. Um, Got to go with my um, uh, fellow legal podcast nerd, Sarah. What say you? I have said repeatedly on this podcast that tweets that the executive branch does not consider tweets to be orders. And it felt nice to know that that is still the case <laughs> since I, uh, you know, left 18 months ago or so. Um, yeah, there's a reason tweets aren't orders. So, so many reasons. But I guess what's frustrating to me is that it works, right? Like he says this and everyone, everyone across the aisle, actually, of, of all media stripes, of all Twitter stripes, everyone's like, oh my God, he declassified this, it's terrible, or oh my God, he declassified this, it's awesome. And the whole time, I just feel like I'm shouting in the wind going, no, he didn't. <laughs> All right, so I, have a, I, have a, I mean, I don't want to interrupt this, but I have, a, I think, an important clarifying question. Do we, A, think that Donald Trump doesn't know that he has to do more than just simply tweet, I am calling for the declassification of all of these things? Um, and if not, then, I mean, is it, po I, I can't do ABC on this. I, it is not clear to me that Trump doesn't understand that, uh, so just saying something on Twitter doesn't make it so. And if, if, and so do you guys think that his, this is a deliberate political strategy where he is saying he's going to do something and deliberately not doing it? Or do you think he actually thinks he did it and then doesn't realize after four years on the job that that's not how you do the job? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, it's an honest, sincere question. I have an answer to it. Okay. And it's an answer that I actually was surprised about myself because I think if I were in, um, in shoes outside of the executive branch, I would have assumed it was the latter, meaning that he thought he had declassified it and like just simply like didn't figure out that it hadn't been declassified. Um, that is not the case. He knows that it has not been declassified. And in fact, uh, yeah, he, he very much knows it has not been declassified and has agreed to not declassify them. And so the strategy is to seem like he's been thwarted while his, his idiot followers who take him at his word on Twitter on everything go out and uh, like St. Jerome before the masses and preach the gospel of the true tweets? I mean, what, 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 what? It's a con. He wants, it's a con. <laughs> he wants to declassify them, but then when experts come in to tell him why that's a bad idea, he agrees with them and then doesn't declassify them. And yet continues to tweet. That he has declassified them. That he's declassified them. It's a con. It's a con. And so what ends up happening is that his followers, um, including people who know better, we should be honest about this. They're not just idiot followers. They're people who know better 
who claim to be quite sourced within the White House. I think uh, we might know who some of those people are. Then continue this by saying that's all being foiled against the president's orders by this, you know, nefarious deep state. And it is being foiled in the sense that uh, uh, there are people who bring in those experts to tell him the ramifications of declassification, and then he is persuaded not to do it. They consider that to be foiling for what that's worth. But that's not what they're saying. I know. Yeah. (laughs) What they're essentially saying is that the president has issued a legally binding order that is being blocked by the deep state, not that the deep state has persuaded the president not to issue a legally binding order. Those are really different things. And in case B, their beef is with the president. Yeah. Uh, but, But the president apparently cannot fail. He can only be failed. And so here we are. Um, but Steve, you've, you've followed a lot and you're, you're no fan of, and I don't think there's anybody on this podcast who would be considered a, a real fan of the Obama national security and intelligence establishment. Um, what's your read on the sort of the bust or the poof of the macro large scale Obama gate narrative, uh, at least at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm still interested in seeing um, if these reports are released, um, what they say specifically, what they provide in, in terms of details. But you're right. I, mean, my, my, I tangled with the Obama national security team, both on the political side and in the intel side. And, you know, while I don't, I think that the claims about a deep state have gone well beyond what's warranted, there's no question that there were uh, prominent intelligence officials uh, leading the most important intelligence agencies who were, I think, manipulating intelligence for President Obama. And I would include in that John Brennan. I would include in that James Clapper. Um, there were others who I think acted in a, in a deeply political way. So it was always plausible to me that some of these folks would have been thumbing the scales on their way out. I mean, it, it, it was never entirely crazy, but what really mattered was the evidence. Could we, could we prove it? Did we see it? Um, I would still say that there, I have questions about what we, uh, I have questions about the unmasking process generally. There seems to be um, anomalies in the process, and there seem to be a number of requests that I think are inconsistent with the good practice of unmasking. Unmasking is, you know, revealing the identities of somebody who's captured in uh, in our in our communications intercepts. And I would still like to see a definitive accounting of what happened there because I think there were serious questions. Um, but I was skeptical of the, the broader, uh, conspiracy theories that were, um, that were spun about them on the, on the more specific question of Gina. I mean, the, the allegations in from Trump world broadly, and this, this echoed throughout the president's sort of Trump media complex were that Gina Haspel was, uh, blocking the declassification that Trump had ordered, that Trump wanted, that the White House was pushing, um, because it would damage her, it would damage the CIA as an institution, and she wanted to keep a job in the Biden administration if Joe Biden is elected. Those were specific claims. They 
they got a lot of attention on the center right, the, the pro-Trump center right uh, media. And it turns out that there was no declassification order. That's not a small problem with that story. That's the center <laughs> of the story being false. And, you know, I, I think it also it means that all the sources, if they exist at all, either were so low level that they assumed the tweet meant a declassification order was in the works, or they just didn't know Jack feces about anything. And, um, uh, which tells you that either the sources don't exist or they are, you know, the, the, the guy who sells you the, the Washington post and a pack of lifesavers in the lobby of Langley. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> having, having spent a fair amount of time reporting and I think probably talking to, to some of those same sources, I think the, the sources are probably, um, you know, what we would call in a position to know these things, but either misunderstood what was happening because they didn't take the time to ask the questions. There's a sense in, in that world, in sort of the center-right Intel world right now that everything always is about the president and everyone everywhere is trying to get the president. Mm -hmm. And it's just not the case. As I say, and I say, I say that as somebody who, who's, who's watched some of these top Intel officials go after uh, presidents or defend President Obama. So I think it's possible that there was just, uh, th that this was based on a series of assumptions and then offered to reporters as certainties when the certainties didn't exist. Um, but it's, it's telling to me that you know, a lot of the places that ran with this, that amplified these claims are, you know, have been on a, on a war path about the use of anonymous sources when it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or anyone else, but relied entirely in building these stories now shown to have been false on their own anonymous sources. And the problem with, I mean, there are all sorts of problems with anonymous sources. We talked about it a, a few weeks ago. We got a lot of uh, listener feedback, actually, that people were very interested in what that means and how it worked. Um, the problem with anonymous sources is that you, 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 obviously you don't know who the people are and you don't know what their motives are in speaking, but you can't deploy anonymous sources for political ends. It's, you can't, you can't have an anonymous sources that you listen to so that you can defend the president, but condemn anonymous sources who provide information that's somehow damaging the president. The reverse shouldn't be true either. And unfortunately, I think we've seen too much of that. Can I have a little rant moment? Yeah, Please. I was going to ask you because you had this knowing, you, you kind of had a, a knowing look on your face. <laughs> that Here's my rant. During the Obama years, a lot was made over the uh, politicizing the Department of Justice. Understandably so. I think it's a really bad thing to politicize criminal investigations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to rehash that. Here's what's happened in the last three years that annoys me, and annoys is an understatement. Uh, the, for political purposes, for, to win elections, the right has thrown dust into the air, as you say, Steve, based on anonymous sources or innuendo or whatever else, over things like unmasking uh, uh, the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, 
um, the investigation into the Russia investigation, all of these things. Uh, Uranium One, I don't know if you remember that little nugget. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, The list goes on and on. And each time they asked the Department of Justice to look into these things, and it dominated uh, cable news at night on the right. It dominated Twitter. It, you know, there's all these stories and and hoopla. And the Department of Justice is left holding the bag, investigating these things. Then, when the Department of Justice closes the investigation and says we found no wrongdoing, it gets no attention from either side. Mm. And so it actually politically was a smart thing to do. It was all upside for the people who did this. And the downside is to the credibility and the institution of the Department of Justice, which I love with all my heart and have worked there three different times. And to walk into that building is an, uh, is an honor and one is in awe of the majesty of what our Department of Justice in the United States of America has been capable of bringing to this country and and there is political advantage to what they are doing that is going to destroy the department of justice because it will be deployed by both sides now because it was so effective rant over (laughs) um so two quick points and i'd be interested in a response from any of you guys um one I am rem- I am I am of the mind that the most remarkable thing about this is that the president of the United States has said repeatedly that this was an attempt to overthrow the government his words that this was a coup the greatest crime political crime in American history and with the exception of us and maybe 300 500 more people um no one really cares very much about it and I don't even say mm-hmm. I care very much about it so maybe I'm lowballing that or highballing that. I think that it's it's the the idea, the the premise of so many people who have emphasized so much in this stuff, you know, that that um the Durham you know, Durham will save us, right? I mean, it's this <laughs> this whole kind of thing. It all presupposes that there are an enormous number of, p- of voters out there who will be flipped if <clears throat> the narrative, the sort of Trump Federalist. Infowars, whatever narrative is confirmed, or that if it's uh, uh, repudiated or refuted, I don't think either is true. But I think that's the my number- point. It's not based on that. It's based on being able to talk about it endlessly. They don't actually care what the report ends up showing because if they did, they wouldn't want said report because everyone knows who actually is around this stuff that their report was never going to show anything, which means it was all about the talking point. And uh, and that's what's so frustrating to me, because either then the Department of Justice can decline to investigate something that a lot of people now believe was true, which would undermine, you know, faith in our government, democracy, republic, et cetera, or they can investigate it, find nothing, and then nobody notices. And so it's a catch-22 for the department. Um, and, okay, you know, that leads me to my second... One second. That, that leads me to my second point really quickly. Let's let me stipulate that if the Department of Justice found nefarious unmasking procedures or other things, Bill Barr would have given a press conference. Bill Barr would have done something to help the Trumpian narrative on this. And I look, I think the left is 
gets Bill Barr wrong a lot. I'm just done defending him because Bill Barr is too uninterested in protecting the reputation of the Department of Justice or himself to fight, you know, to, to, to stand up for himself. Um, and I'm sure he's got a really interesting series of rationales about why he has to do it that way. But um, is, there, is there nothing wrong with quietly just waiting for the Washington Post to get this little scooplet about the fact that there's, there's no report, there's no findings of wrongdoing? I mean, why not have a press conference saying, hey, you know, we've been told, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of people have been concerned for the last four years about these nefarious things allegedly going on. Turns out we found no evidence for it. I mean, it seems to me that's a public service, too. Why can't the DOJ do that? Uh, oh, look, I, I think they could do that. It is, however, <laughs> when the Department of Justice closes an investigation without pursuing charges, despite what Jim Comey did in 2016, it is the policy of the Department of Justice not to comment on it. So they would have to break policy to comment on not bringing charges. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. No, 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 no. You, you were, you were about to push so, back. Yeah, on so let me, yeah, let me push back a little bit on, on some of this. It's, it's not the case. And look, we're speaking in very broad terms here. So we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the questions about uh, the specific cases we're talking about here are the questions about unmasking and the allegation that the deep state or Gina Haspel or others blocked the president's wishes to declassify all of this material from before. But it, it is the case that DOJ and the FBI and, uh, and individuals were found having behaved or acted improperly in certain respects of what happened before the election. And so it's not it's not entirely crazy to say, boy, this is troubling. I mean, whether you're talking about the, 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 the texts back and forth from Peter Strzok and, and Lisa Page, whether you're talking about the changing of the, the FISA applications, the changing of the language, whether you're talking about even the provenance of, of uh, some of the Steele report and how, how that was handled, there are real problems. I mean, DOJ and FBI, federal law enforcement officials, I think in some cases made bad mistakes. And in some cases, we're dishonest about this stuff. And we've seen that in previous IG reports. So I don't want to I don't want to be misunderstood as saying, you know, all hail the, the DOJ. This stuff is all made up. It's not made up. And unfortunately, that's what I think that's to your last point, Sarah. That's what makes this so difficult is because everybody can have their own slice of the truth. And then build a mountain of falsehoods on top of that. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's where this is so bad because you can see people have made legitimate points about concerns with the, the, the texting and what that meant. You could, and then growing that into this huge conspiracy that Gina Haspel is trying to undermine Donald Trump so she can be CIA director under Joe Biden. I mean, there is there are elements of truth to the broad claims and even some of the specific claims about federal law enforcement um, mistakes and I think um, nefarious behavior, but it's not in these specific cases that we're talking about here uh, applicable, apparently. You know, I, one thing I think from the beginning, two things have been true. There was there were valid reasons to investigate the Trump campaign and there are valid reasons to investigate the investigation. I think both of those things are true and what we're in the grips of and what we were in the grips of for a long time are two competing maximalist Russia conspiracy theories. One was personified by the Steele dossier of Trump as an active operative of 
essentially Trump and his entire campaign, just essentially an extension of Russian intelligence and, and the existence of all this compromise and all of this stuff that you heard repeated in parts of the left ad infinitum. And then, but there was this other competing conspiracy theory on the right, which was there was never anything to investigate at all, that the whole thing is a hoax and that the real scandal is that everything that occurred, and I've heard this, I've been, I've sat down at, 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 uh, and shared a meal with somebody who just laid this all out, that this whole thing from day one was a, uh, nothing more than an entrapment by the Obama CIA. There was never anything to investigate. There was never any wrongdoing. Nothing. It was all 100% an Obama CIA operation for, fi for fire insurance or flood insurance or whatever. It was an insurance policy that if Trump won, you were going to be able to cash in on the insurance to remove Trump from office. And and what you end up with is discovering after all, all of this investigative reporting, after IG reports, after the Senate Intel report, after the Mueller report, what you find out is that, yeah, there was some really, the, the Trump team was doing some really shady stuff. None of it apparently criminal, but really shady stuff. And also we learned that some of the investigators were doing things, for example, some pretty shady things, especially around the Carter Page FISA. But neither of the maximalist theories is being borne out here. And, and that, I think, is what's causing a lot of angst, is a lot of the people sort of invested in this notion that what, what was happening was the equivalent of some sort of hidden coup, when in reality it was an investigation where some members of the investigating team cut corners or perhaps lied. But they were also investigating, they were validly investigating some really problematic stuff. And that's a messier reality that people don't like to embrace. And with that, let's move on to our fun topic today. Uh, during the confirmation hearings, Amy Coney Barrett's family has been under a microscope. And when you look through that microscope at the nitty gritty details of her family, what you find are seven of the most delightfully well-behaved children that I think have ever <laughs> existed on the planet. So I'm just wondering, uh, and they didn't stay for the whole day yesterday, but if your children had to sit there for eight plus hours and uh, listen to that, what would we be seeing behind you? Steve, I'm going to start with you. And I'm most curious, I think, about your middle daughter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there's only one way to answer this, right? If I, if I say, look, they would be sitting there with hands folded in their lap looking like angels, that'll be a very self-serving answer. Um, <laughs> and it would be true, though, for like five minutes. <laughs> I think it's more true than not, honestly. I mean, you know, we, our, our, we, we take our kids a lot of places. We travel a lot with them, and they're generally pretty well behaved. I'll say this, you know, for now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of growing up to come. Um, yeah, I, I think the the I think they would I think they would all be um, they would all be able to handle it. They wouldn't quite get why anybody cares what dad has to say, which is <laughs> which is true now. Um, probably why they identify so much with Jonah. 
Uh, <laughs> either that or they're sort of the same intellectual level as Jonah. I don't know. Um, the, the, the youngest would probably get fidgety after, after oh, a little three. bit. she's three. Yeah. Yeah. She would, she would get fidgety and, uh, and probably take over the, the entire, uh, hearing room and, and have people eating out of her hands. That'd I think that your guess. middle daughter, there's a decent chance that uh, actually to help you, she would just start dancing Possible. as a way Possible. to distract the senators, <laughs> win you some votes and get you out of the hot seat. Jonah? She could, she could win votes for sure. Yeah. When, when Lucy was a younger girl, uh, I think there's a, like the bookmakers in London who, you know, will take bets on anything. They would give very it'd be even money that she would get on all fours and start crawling underneath the chairs all over the place. That was her go-to move in every airport we'd ever been to. Um, which is one of the reasons I think she's acquired a lot of immunity to various diseases. Um, but these days, if you gave her, if you allowed her to have her phone, you just see her looking at her phone for 11 hours. I mean, and then she, she'd do that anyway. So it's she not a big yeah, deal. She wouldn't even notice she was somewhere else. I think it's weird that you went to Lucy with that question. I was assuming we would get some Zoe and Pippa responses. I asked about your children. Oh, that's true. Well, I just, you know, for the purposes of this, I, I thought I should lead with my bipedal, my bipedal child. Um, well, uh, although saying your bipedal child would be on all fours. That's true. It was a convergence. Um, Pippa would uh, surely bring um, tennis balls to each and every one of the senators, except for maybe Sheldon Whitehouse, because he's scary. Um, true story, uh, very quickly. Cosmo, the Wonder Dog, my previous dog, the one who's got the party hat on my Twitter feed, um, he had a thing for fat people just like fat people and would go running up to fat people, wagging his tail to say hello. He and knew they knew where the food was clearly like evolutionarily. Maybe. You shouldn't be attracted to fat people. If you're a dog. One day, my wife comes home having uh walk cause in the Calorama dog park, which we really, really, really went to because it's on the ritzy side of, of Hanagat Avenue when we lived down there. And she was like really disappointed. And then I said, what's going on? And she says, well, your, your dog betrayed us. I think she might've said son. Um, <laughs> And I said, what happened? She said, well, there was this fat guy who got out of a van with a chucket and a bunch of Portuguese water dogs. And I'm like, yeah. And, and Kazi ran over to say hello and hang out with him. And he got along great. And I was like, okay. And he says, yeah, it was Ted Kennedy. Um, <laughs> so anyway, there you go. David? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my kids are older. Uh, I have, I have uh, two college-age kids, one 21, one 19. Uh, the 19-year-old, the, the my son, um, has an extremely expressive face and he would not listen impassively if I was sitting there and I was getting, uh, what he would consider to be unfairly, uh, uh, unfairly grilled. So that would be an, ob there would be obvious disapproval. The memification now, of oh, the little there French. would be many. Yeah, there would be many memes. Now my youngest she would look at it as perhaps the ideal opportunity to showcase the latest parts of her wardrobe and the sheer delight and joy at planning out each day in the hope <laughs> that it would receive some sort of comment, you know, maybe in page six or something, Naomi French stunning the gallery with her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> but uh, but they they'd all they'd all be extremely you know appropriate and well behaved with the exception of the memification. But that would be you know that would be kind of fun. So in my visualization, uh, we don't have a lot of toys for the brisket. He turned four months old on Monday, uh, and so he doesn't need a lot of toys. But the one thing that we have for him is the uh, baby Bjorn bouncer. It's like it's literally like a piece of metal that has fabric over it and the child can be basically leaned into it and that's where you can put them for a while. But he thinks this is the best toy um, in the universe and has figured out that if he swings his legs like you would on a regular swing, he can bounce himself to the point that he is very close to catapulting himself out of the baby bouncer and it brings him infinite delight. As he gets more excited, he bounces more, etc. So I think that what we would do right now is move a chair out, put the baby bouncer in (laughs) and just let him do that. And I think he could do it the whole time. Sure, he'd fall asleep (laughs) a little, but then he'd wake up and start bouncing again. As the questions got more uh, heated, he would just bounce harder. And you could judge how I was doing based on the speed of bouncing until during the White House 30-minute rant on dark money, he would catapult himself into the panel. (laughs) You know, what would be actually a really good look with all of that is if you also gave him a child-safe gavel to teeth on. (laughs) That'd be a good look. (laughs) <laughs> they tell me that one tooth is starting to start to come in, starting to start to come in. Basically, that's our brisket who's excitement. The, who's the they? The pediatrician, a, a monitor of teeth watchers. <laughs> <laughs> I took him to the pediatrician. He's she. Uh, she walked Own in. Oh no, it was seven eight nine four seven six two three four. She. So I, we went yesterday for his, you know, shots or whatever. And the pediatrician walked in. He was like sitting on my lap, and she goes, uh, "So, so he's what about nine months now?" And then looked at the chart and went four months. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it was a nice moment. He's in the 95th percentile for height and weight. Wow. And undoubtedly for intellect and looks and all of those other things too. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So his grandmother tells him. Very advanced, yes. Yes. (laughs) All right, listeners, thank you for joining us. We will see you again next week. It appears that we will not have a debate tomorrow night for Dispatch Live, but if that changes, if we have a last-minute debate, Steve, can we do a Dispatch Live? We We will adjust as necessary, yeah. It can be like the Brady Bunch. We can put on the show right here. It'll be great. (laughs) But assuming there's not one, we will see you on Wednesday next week. Same bat time, same bat place. Have a great week. Brady Bunch was a TV show, Steve. (laughs) Oh, I saw that. (laughs) 